to really inhabit this bodily life is to find ourselves right in the center of everything, right in the center of the universe, right in the center of consciousness, right in the center of everything we have ever experienced, can ever experience, and will ever experience. The ordinary view, the ordinary mind, the egocentric perception, also has the sense of me being at the center of the universe. But in a rather different way, we have the sense of me going through life, going through the world, going through space, going through time. And that's the usual way we conceive, so much so that it seems ordinary to us. I'm going from here to there, we say. I'm going from one place to another, from one situation to another, and I'm going through time. And, you know, that makes sense to all of us. And I'm not really trying to, certainly not trying to deny that as a way of perceiving, and not even really to contradict it as a way of perceiving, but it is just a way of perceiving. And it may be that as we really inhabit bodily life, we also could have the, actually the very opposite way of perceiving. That actually life is moving through me. Or more precisely, that life is moving through awareness. Rather than me being the agent of or the possessor of awareness, moving through time and space and life. Rather we establishing ourselves as this unmoving, ever-present, always available awareness. And time and space and life just travels rather freely through awareness. So that we might find, oh, we don't have to go anywhere. We're already here. It may be then that even in the going through our lives, conventionally we might carry on saying, oh, I'm going from here to there. I'm going from this place to another. I'm going from one time to another. But that the inner feeling really is of being just at home. In any moment, in any place, in any time. Because most essentially one's at home in awareness. One's at home in this theatre of experience where it's all happening. One's at home in the receiving of bodily life, emotional life, sensory life, conceptual life, imaginative life, all of life. And so the going from here to there, the doing this and that, you can still carry on in the same way, actually not quite the same way, because there's a sense of fluidity or grace, graciousness that accompanies those movements, because the inner feeling really is one of non-doing and of non-going. The inner feeling is one of at rest, at home, and available. There's a rather nice uh, exchange between two Zen monastics that expresses something of that. One says, first two monastics meet on the road and one says to the other, where are you going? And when Zen monastics meet on the road and they say, where are you going? Right. They don't want to hear the place. Right. They're checking each other out. It's a kind of Dharma combat. <laughs> One says to the other, where are you going? 
the second says, to an unchanging place. <laughs> first says, if it's unchanging, how can there be any going? Second says, going too is unchanging. (sighs) (laughs) Buddhists like this kind of thing, you know. So, make of that what you will. You might find it deeply inspiring, you might find it worthlessly confusing. I like it very much. I was very, very struck by it the first time I read that exchange which was probably 25 years ago. Where are you going? To an unchanging place. If it's unchanging, how can there be any going? Oh, going also is unchanging. So, this has been our focus today, this establishing a certain ground of awareness. Establishing uh, presence, what we've called embodied presence or embellied presence or womby presence. And we might start with the idea of you know, embodied presence as here inside this lump of flesh, you know, this body as thing, body as object, body as a human-shaped, wibbly-wobbly thing. But maybe already in the process of the day, or maybe already through the familiarity that some of you have, deep familiarity for some of you with with this practice, that one starts to leave behind the, the sense of body as thing and really enter into the body as this kind of, this field of aliveness, really. A field of sensory aliveness physical aliveness, energetic aliveness, emotional aliveness, cognitive aliveness, conscious aliveness. There's many, there's a kind of infinite deepening actually to what that is, to what we mean when we say embodied awareness. And so it may be that at first, as I say, there's a sense of the kind of body as thing, uh, this solid thing, a body that even when we say body, or we try to, you know, usual language, be mindful of body, or we try to enter into embodied awareness, that that, that very uh, way of framing has a lot of body ideas and body images to it. That the sense of self as body is a lot in that. And maybe that as today goes by and as the other days go by, we let, uh, we let those ideas and images be rather secondary. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't arise, but we leave them alone, we let them be secondary, so that the more direct, immediate, fluid, alive sense of what's here, moment by moment, can more fully inform our awareness, can inform our meditation, can inform our practice, can inform our uh, discoveries. Mm. In In the sitting meditation, in the walking meditation, in the movement practices, and in the informal moments of the day. It also might be, as we kind of settle into bodily life, that we go through kind of layers, and we already mentioned this earlier, layers of kind of unconscious tension patterns that we hold. The tendency to be tight in our shoulders or uh, in our jaw or around our eyes or in our chest or our belly or elsewhere. And that even though we're not putting any particular pressure on those areas, that they show up as kind of hot spots or tight spots, uncomfortable spots. As they start to get the space, the care, the attention, 
that they actually need in order to kind of move or to unwind or unlock in various ways. And sometimes we might meet that uh, unlocking or unwinding just physically, the, the certain heat and density of just of sensations moving. And then sometimes there might be some emotional nuance that goes along with that. If the sensations that we encounter are rather uncomfortable, hot, tight, then you know we might we might easily experience frustration <coughs> or impatience or resistance or discouragement or complaint or the full catastrophe of all of those running along together. And actually, in a kind of sort of mysterious but fairly accurate way, very often, you know, the, the frustration or the impatience says something about the sensations. Oh, if only these sensations would go away, then I could really meditate, for example. That this heat or this tension or this discomfort seems to be the problem. And the frustration or resistance or impatience that arises is just you know trying to deal with it or get rid of it or get past it or resolve it or even okay I'll be with it so that it'll go away and actually often when that's going on the emotional nuance is important it's often actually that we don't know what it was necessarily that particularly gave rise to that tension in the jaw or the chest or the shoulders or whatever. But it somehow often has something to do with the emotion that arises in conjunction with it. So worth paying attention. If you've got discomfort in your shoulders and you're feeling very uh, impatient with the discomfort, maybe it's the impatience itself that needs some care and attention. You know? And maybe that actually noticing and tracking and uh, looking into the nature of how you get impatient is actually quite helpful when you, as you listen to that and get used to that and stop reacting to that, that the very thing you're impatient with, the tense shoulders in this case, might also start to so- soften. So there's various... Actually, there's many different layers to what happens in the meditative process as we just settle into um, bodily life. And I thought I'd look this evening in different ways at some of those layers. There's the sort of pragmatic layer right, of just bodily presence, heat, tension, sensations, etc. And then there are these different ways that our experience of body can fill out, open up, dissolve. And that various different ways, uh, wider ways, deeper ways of knowing bodily experience can start to fill out our experience. So there's still a sense of being very much embodied, present, awake, here. And yet here in a much more sort of full spectrum or multidimensional way than we're usually used to. The way most of us are usually used to is here inside something that seems to be called me, looking outside at something that seems to be called everything else. So that's a quite two-dimensional way of meeting life. There was one dimension called the inner dimension of self and another dimension called the outer dimension of world. And maybe that's not the whole story. And maybe you've already had tastes in your own life or practice or other situations where that sort of dualistic or two-dimensional way has, has fallen away. There's also various kind of poetic ways of understanding um, this body or relating to this body. In a way, that exchange I just said with the, the monastics, 
It's a kind of poetic way of invoking a different relationship to time and space. Going, going and not going, changing and unchanging place. There's also the kind of what we could call the poetic sense in the Buddhist tradition of this body being the Buddha's body. And sitting here as a Buddha body. And that doesn't mean, you know, the Buddha, that guy from two and a half thousand years ago. Right. Buddha, the root of the word Buddha, Bud means awake. That's why Buddha was called Buddha, means one who's awake. Interesting, I think, when one thinks of Buddhism. You know, sometimes we say Buddhism and we might associate Buddhism with a lot of various beliefs, maybe, ideas about rebirth and karma. We might associate it with temples and statues and uh, monastics with shaved heads, and etc., etc., but really, Buddhism means awakism. <coughs> awakism. And people ask me sometimes if I'm a Buddhist. And it sort of seems silly to say no, because I've spent my whole adult life kind of immersed in these practices and teachings and have this kind of deep love of the tradition and deep love of these practices and teachings. But I also don't really ever feel moved to say yes. You know. Really feel like being a Buddhist, you know? but oh, hold on, wait. Buddhism means awakism. Am I an awakist? Yes, I'm happy to identify as an awakist. So this sense of sitting in a Buddha body, inhabiting a Buddha body, expressing a Buddha body that our movements are Buddha movements, that our gestures are Buddha's gestures. This Buddha body meaning a body of awakening, we could say, or a body of awakeness. Much more primary than the idea of body and the image of body. As we settle into embodied presence, what we find is the most primary, fundamental element of being here is our awakeness. We're conscious. Body itself is, you know, physical body is very unreliable. It's changing, aging, bits of it fall off. Or, you know, when you, every time you cut your nails, what's that mean? Is that bits of your body that you're leaving behind in various places? You know? Is that why Buddhist monastics shave their heads? So there's a little less self, you know? taking off bits of the self of the hair. Body isn't any kind of you know, fluid thing. Hair is growing, skin is flaking, nails are getting cut off, things are going in and then coming out the other end. No. It's a lot going on here. And all of it is, is you know, changing, 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 changing. And yet as we settle into it, oh, much more fundamental than any of the changing processes which don't stay still for a moment. This awakeness that's constantly available in the middle of it all. And so available that it's right here now. It's the awakeness that's listening to these words. It's the awakeness that can recognize the feel and the sense of body. It's the awakeness that's so awake that you can't turn it off. Even if you try, try not to be awake right now. Right? Where does your awakeness go? Can you make it go anywhere? Can you not be awake right now? Every moment of conscious experience is illuminated by this awakeness sitting here in a Buddha body. And you may or may not relate to the kind of poetic sense of that. That's the reminder that I'm making mostly to myself when I come in the hall each time. 
and there's, there's the Buddha body at the front. You can see that there are two statues at the front, right? Buddha and Kuan Yin, or for simplicity, there's a male Buddha figure and a female Buddha figure. The female Buddha figure, you rather weirdly, used to be sitting over there in the corner. And last time Gail and I were here, was it last time or the time before, last year? It was a bit of an effort because these wooden blocks are very heavy. But we basically pushed the wooden block over from there into the middle. So that the two met. And because they're similar colours, they kind of let blend into each other. Got a, this is a gender blender Buddha body. <laughs> and uh, it turned out that there had been a lot of debate over some previous months at Guy House about what the correct relationship or position between the two statues should be. So we voted with our feet and just moved uh, Kuan Yin into the centre. And I would say good thing that uh, somehow, I don't know what the committee process was, but she stayed. <laughs> so when I come in, there's that, oh, there's, there's this uh, Buddha body, you know, symbol of our awake nature. So and that's the bow I make, right? Just that recognizing, honoring, appreciating that this kind of symbol of awakeness, Buddha body. And then I turn around, oh, all these Buddha bodies. And that's the gesture I make in your direction then. Recognizing, honoring, appreciating. The same awakeness. Same Buddha nature. Same Buddha body. It's, it's, uh, I found that a very beautiful kind of idea to get used to. Living into this being a Buddha body. as a kind of something more essential or more primary than some of the other more complicated ways we can relate to body. Mm. Aging body. It's one of the signifiers that we more often apply. Body in terms of, you know, age, history, name, ethnicity. Various identity signifiers, categories. And some or other of those uh, signifiers and categories might be important to us for various reasons. Right? And right, good for them to be important and for them to have their expression. And yet maybe also helpful uh, to find and honour and appreciate and deepen into a r genuine relationship, not just an idea, a relationship to this as a Buddha body, an awakening body, a body of awakeness. And some people are familiar with the bowing. Some people, you know, when I turn around to bow, some of you, I notice you like to bow back. Some of you don't like to bow back. Some of you are not really sure whether you like to bow or not, but you think maybe you should because other people are. You know. <laughs> so, and bows with various degrees of sincerity or discomfort or uh, refusal. You know. So just to say, I don't mind at all whether you bow. I would encourage you at least to bow inwardly to this Buddha body, you know, your own Buddha body. And if it seems to make sense to you, even if it's an unfamiliar gesture and you feel a little awkward, if it seems to make sense to you, that to use that gesture as a kind of, as a way of acknowledging, honouring, appreciating uh, this body of awakeness that we are, then please feel free. And of course, if you'd rather not, fine. It may be, it may be that that sense of Buddha body, that some of the art, especially if you're a little bit involved in the Buddhist tradition, some of the art and the iconography, 
and various kind of statues or tankas or paintings, representations of uh, various Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Dakinis and deities without needing to know, and maybe some of you are steeped in some of the traditions that, that go into some of that stuff a lot, and maybe you're not and you don't mind. You don't need to necessarily know any of the details about that stuff. You don't need to know what the symbolism is of holding a particular symbol or the way the, the hand, what having a lotus flower or anything else. But sometimes just you know, one can sense a kind of dignity in some of those artistic representations in a way that's inspiring. We just built a new Dhamma Hall at, uh, at our centre in France over last winter. And, uh, and that hall is called the Tara Hall. And the central figure on the shrine is a large tanka of green Tara. And green Tara is a, kinda is a, Tibetan, <coughs> Buddha, a Tibetan Buddha. And she has this kind of graceful dignity in the way she sits. And she has one foot like this. Not because her knees ache and that she can't sit anymore, but which might be why some of us sometimes <laughs> put our foot out. But her foot is out as a kind of gesture of compassion, ready to spring up and kind of tend to the wounds of beings, ready to kind of love and respond to the hearts of beings. And, you know, it's been interesting, right? Our in the hall that we the hall that we had before had a Buddha statue in, which was a little more of a kind of austere Buddha figure. And when adding this second hall and having a much more kind of feminine uh, symbol of a Buddha body at the front of the hall, it's it's kind of cha- it's changed the feel. It's different to practice in that space, and sometimes people have uh, we've been struck teaching there this through this first season of using that hall by um, the feel in there and people's response to this kind of graceful, dignified, beautiful green Buddha figure, and of course her gestures of love. Wisdom, clarity, support, readiness to embrace suffering are really ways of reminding ourselves, again, that it's that bow to the Buddha body. We might bow to Tara, but the invitation is to bow to those qualities, to our own capacity to, uh, to tend to suffering, to respond to what's happening in the heart. So there's a whole kind of, you know, one could call it a spiritual dimension or a religious dimension, but I think of it really as a kind of poetic dimension, symbolic dimension that we can open up to in just, you know, same basic practice, embodied awareness, but adding this sort of poetic dimension, sitting in this Buddha body. And the way that that might help us to recover in ourselves or discover in ourselves qualities of dignity, graciousness, compassion, open-heartedness. And there's other dimensions that we might discover as we settle into just embodied awareness. As we settle into and open up the belly center that we were speaking about this morning. I've spoke, we, I spoke this morning about the belly center or the, or the womby center, yoniso, as this sort of deepest place within us, this sort of uh, deep center of presence. And sometimes as we sense down, you know, down into the belly, there can be a, st- a strong sense of kind of depth that opens up. A depth that defies the usual boundaries of what I think of as my body, this body, physical body. A depth where we can feel sometimes like that sense of belly sort of descends deeply down, 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 and down into the earth. 
And again, maybe you've had maybe a little taste of that today. And maybe you haven't, and please, if you haven't, no, no need to measure yourself against any of these experiences. Just giving a little bit of some mapping of the territory so that one, if these experiences do open up, there can be some recognition of them. And then two, sometimes actually speaking about these dimensions can evoke them in some ways that you, they become more recognizable in your experience. Because it may be, for example, oh, there's a feeling of oh, just being present in my deli- belly and oh, it feels deep. And that's it. Okay, it just feels deep. And then I start thinking about something else because that's my habit of mind. Right. But then when we evoke that depth, uh, maybe you notice that depth and you can just let your attention follow it. You can let your, yourself kind of drop into that depth. And we might find in that depth of embodied presence a kind of a, a deep rootedness, a sense of kind of real belonging to the ground beneath us, a belonging that has with it a kind of sphere or nuances of steadiness, of a, a depth of relaxation or a kind of immovable quality, or a quality of a sort of deep or unshakable confidence. In the Zen tradition, there's this, uh, this uh, that's evoked through this phrase called sitting like a mountain. And this sort of pyramid shape that we are, mountain-like, deep into the connection with the ground. And that may just have a sense of rootedness in the moment. Or it may have a sense of ground that spreads out in various ways. It may show up in walking meditation, that sense of contact, connection with the ground, and maybe more specifically even connection with the land around us. When the first... um, the first Europe, mostly European and American teachers who, um, who spent time in, the, in Asia, kind of practicing uh, in monasteries, mm, mid to late 60s, early 70s, and then mid 70s starting to come back and teach in Europe and in the US and centers like Gaia House and uh, getting established. And there was a sense of in the beginning of how to translate these practices which were kind of profound and powerful but also were deeply embedded in, a cer- in cultural traditions, right? The cultural traditions of Thailand, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Tibet, uh, Sri Lanka, etc. And some sense that if you just wholesale import the whole cultural tradition, then you know, it, it retains something that feels kind of foreign in some ways, that feels inaccessible to people. And so there was some attempt, and we might look back and see that attempt as sincere but possibly misguided in various ways, who knows. But there was that attempt to try to, phrase the Buddha used, to press the honey out of these practices, to not get too immersed in the cultural traditions that they were immersed in, but to look at the texts, look at how the Buddha taught, look at what was the kind of essential elements of the, of the teachings and practices, and to try to communicate those. And meditation retreats, just like this one, became the first uh, and kind of foundational way of transmitting these teachings and practices, exploring these teachings and practices. And yet in the process, I think, in the, in the attempt to not get bogged down in cultural tradition, there was possibly some throwing out of the baby with the bathwater. And one of the things that runs through certainly all of the Buddhist traditions, but actually not just Buddhist, one of the things that runs through, it seems to me, pretty much every intact, multi-generational spiritual tradition that runs through every indigenous tradition, 
is a kind of a deep honouring of two things, land and ancestry. And we live, whatever, you know, most of us live in, in, a, in ways and live within culture and live in a kind of belief system and a world view that is quite uprooted from both of those things. It may not be the individual case for everyone here, but you know, it's probably the case for most of us. Kind of live in ways that are disconnected from a deep sense of belonging to land and of honouring land, and of listening to land, and of feeling our relationship to the land. And we live in many ways, in ways where we have a kind of dislocated sense of ancestry often. And it may not immediately seem obvious, the connection between embodied awareness and recovering an intimacy with land and ancestry, but it can very much lead to both of those dimensions. And certainly in terms of our recognizing our symbiosis with land, our dependency on land, our belonging to the earth. You, know, you don't need me to tell you, you know, the state of our dislocation from land and earth and the and belonging in that way. The, the ecological degradation and the species extinction and the biodiversity loss and the kind of pathological rate of deforestation, etc., uh, etc. Et it's it's, it's uh, It comes directly out of that loss of connection. And whatever we might think about that and whatever decisions we might make about that and whatever causes we might donate to because of that, fundamentally we need to learn to again to kind of love and honour and belong to land. And you don't, lear- you don't learn to love land and belong to land and know your connection to the land as an idea. You know. You know it in your belly, you know it in your body, you know it through your feet. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that you kind of lean in that direction and try to make that happen. But I am suggesting as you sit into the depths of body on the ground, and as you walk in this intimacy of body and ground, earth, grass, ground, land. Won't you just allow your awareness to open to whatever your sense of that connection is? Gail and I are both from this island of land. We were both born and grew up here in the UK, and we've both lived lived out of the UK, as I was saying last night, for a long time. And it's interesting, however at home we feel in France, and we've lived there for 25 years, and in India for five or six years before that, you know, there's some, it's interesting to sense just a kind of, the, the, you know, it's like body has a different kind of relationship to land than coming back here. And You know, uh, there's a particular feeling about the land of in in different places. There's a particular feeling of it to that of Gaia House. You know, one feels actually a lot of the time in places where there's a lot of spiritual practices happening, one feels kind of blessings of land. It's easy actually in a pla- in the places like this to feel a kind of trust with the land, a belonging to the land. And the center where we live in France. Um, when we teach, when there's a full moon night in the retreat that we're teaching, often we d- we do a walking meditation where all together on retreat we walk the perimeter of the property that the Moulin is, and walk under the moon in the early evening before going into the Dhamma Hall for the teachings. And that sense of just kind of contemplating our 
our dependence on land, what we receive from the land. And sense as we walk around the perimeter and along the edge of the river and then up by the hedges, a sense often that's there of both receiving the blessings of that place, receiving the blessings of the land and somehow by our own footsteps, by our own presence, kind of offering the blessings of our own being there sense of a kind of mutuality with land and the sense of ancestry that goes with that and you know coming not as an idea but actually out of an embodied relationship with land we start to discover a kind of embodied relationship to ancestry and in my experience ancestry has more to do with place than it does with people Like uh, when I'm at Gaia House, you're sensing the the kind of ancestry here, the nuns that lived here, the nuns that are buried in the in the cemetery there, and kind of the longevity of people doing practices here. Probably 20 years now that Gaia House has been here, and there's a sense of ancestry to that. Maybe you feel it when you come in the hall the first time yesterday. That's the ancestry of practice, right? You open the door here and, oh, a lot of meditations happened in this room. (laughs) Maybe you feel that when you walk in the gardens and you you sense the the ancestry of all the care that's gone into caring for the building and the gardens and the land over time. Of course, ancestry stretches and stretches and stretches into into you know the infinite history of the of our ancestry and then distant ancestry and then you know pre-human ancestry and then you know, timeless ancestry of life. And without having a cognitive relationship or idea of any of that, there may be moments or there may be dimensions or there may be that sense of depth of connection just to being here, to being in the depth and the ground of experience where some of that sense opens up, sense of belonging to this earth, to this moment, to this heritage of multitudinous life forms that precede us and have given rise to us. That stream of life in the middle of which here we are experiencing and expressing our uh, aliveness. There are more dimensions to embodied awareness that I wanted to speak about. I wanted to speak about some of the layers we might go through in the relationship that we might have to body, the psychological relationship, historical relationship, emotional relationship. The ways in which we can have a quite... um, conflictual relationship with this body you know a conflictual relationship with the way body is aging or a conflictual relationship with the appearance of body a conflictual relationship with some or other of those signifiers I wanted to speak a little bit about some of the practices we can do. I was just speaking at a conference in Paris last week and it was a large conference and the, it was the title of the conference was Health, Consciousness and Meditation. A rather wide <laughs> field of possibility. And there were quite a lot of people at this conference speaking about kind of health in terms of longevity. 
as if, you know, somehow equating health with a state in which we're not sick. And that's the usual way we think of health. Health is this condition in which I'm not sick. But that's a pretty unreliable condition, right? You might be healthy now or not, I don't know. We can't tell by looking at each other. You might feel very healthy, partly healthy, not at all healthy. But it's basically going downhill right? for all of us. You know. The general trajectory is to less healthy, less healthy, <laughs> less healthy, less healthy, dead. So that was sort of the opening line (laughs) in this conference that I gave, you know. After hearing all these interesting and inspiring messages about health, you know, basically (laughs) we're all on a hurtling down a one-way street at an uncertain and an unknown speed towards the absolute loss of any health we've ever had, (laughs) called death. And given that that's just the way it is for all of us, how might we really conceive of genuine health, well-being, a fullness of life, capacity to actually live this embodied life that we have in a way that we can really taste the capacity to live fully and die freely? And one of the practices that I was suggesting to people there was to, to the practice of just looking in the mirror, you know, and noticing. It's not so much even what you what you see when you look in the mirror, because what you see is your decaying <coughs> form, right? You know, you don't notice it too much in your twenties. Probably not even in your thirties. By your forties, it's like. Hello, what's going on? And then, you know, the decline gets more and more rapid, it seems to me, after that, right? <coughs> but the encouragement for people was not just to, just not to contemplate just what you see, but to actually notice the layers of relationship one has to that, you know? And uh, particularly the difficult relationships, the way we kind of uh, worry about or agonize over or, or actively uh, turn away from or feel disappointed in. They, really? Really? You know, disappointed in, even disgusted by, you know, sometimes. And the way in which the layers of our own history right, color that. The ways in which we may, uh, you know, the ways of which from just being teased, maybe in early life, for some aspect of, uh, you know, whether that's to do with the size or shape or some particular feature or, or whatever it was, to shamed in some some ways, or with layers of abuse, right? It can be there that give us can give us a very, um, you know, difficult relationship to body. And to look in the mirror, the practice I was suggesting at this conference, as a practice, right? again and again, to come to, to the mirror for some time and ju- just as a way of noticing the, the, the views, unconscious views or semi-conscious views or even conscious views that we have but that we're somehow unwilling to acknowledge. And to keep looking through the arising and then the, the, the non-engagement um, with those different views. To keep looking in such a way that we can actually recover or discover um, a love for this body. A love that's not at all based on what it looks like or how much hair it has left or how saggy things are getting. A love that's not based on the fact that this body is aging and bound for death. A love that's based on the fact that this is a Buddha body. An awakening body. An alive body, a feeling body. A miraculous body.
I wanted to talk uh, to some of those layers, and yet I find that time is going on. And at the end of a first day of retreat, some of you are probably feeling tired. So maybe I'll come back to some of that another evening. And maybe I'll mean just uh, leave you with this invocation, in a way, of a Buddha body. An invocation of a body that has depth and ground in unfathomable ways, that has dimensionality and belonging. A body in which we can really let ourselves come to rest. A body which is actually made of presence, made of love, made of awakeness. And so we sit here and we go through the layers and we go through the defences and we go through the ideas and we go through the images and we go through the discomfort and we go through the trying to meditate. And we just gently keep feeling for the depth of this presence. And gently keep feeling for the ways we can hold this experience gently, lovingly. Just keep feeling for the fundamental awakeness, which is the nature of being in this body. So, this is the promise and the real possibility of our practice. And this is the spirit in which we sit and walk and move, and eat, and rest, and take care of ourselves and of one another. This is the spirit in which we find ourselves and the world right here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.